And as our kids are being dismissed, would you uh, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 45. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 45, it's on page 721 in your pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 45, it's on page 721. we continue our study through Isaiah. We're kind of in, uh, you could say, the sweet spot in Isaiah. Chapters 40 through 48 is, is just the, uh, the juiciest part of the stake, and we're finally getting to that. And this is one of those texts that's just so rich. Let me just read Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 to 13. Actually, let's start at 44:28 since that leads right into it. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, Let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations beforehand and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you. And will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summoned you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds of the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does, the work, does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled the starry host. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild the city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for uh, your love in our lives, for the fact that you're always there. Even when circumstances seem to point in the opposite direction, we know that you're with us as, as our Savior and our God. And Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you that all things are in your hands, that you are the potter and we are the clay. And Lord, I pray that as we look in this passage today, that we might hear both your love for us and your absolute sovereignty over all things, and that we might be so well grounded in our faith, so well grounded in our trust in you, that no matter what comes our way in life, we would know that you love us and that you're in control. Even if we can't understand 
the present circumstances we face. So God, I pray, strengthen your church today. Strengthen your people. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had an interesting uh, uh, coincidence, you know, one of those uh, this week. Uh, On Sunday, uh, after the service, this uh, guy came up to me and he said, Hey, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, Sure. He goes, I just have one question, one question I'm wrestling with. I said, Okay, shoot, what is it? He said, Okay, here's the question. If God is God and He's good and He's in control and all that, then why do bad things happen to people? Oh, that's all you want to know. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> you know, that, that is such a, a challenging question. But the cool thing was that like the rest of the day and that evening on Sunday, I was thinking through, you know, I was like, well, maybe I'll send him this article or have him read that scripture passage. And I was kind of thinking this through. And then I, I get up Monday morning to study the passage that was on the schedule for me to preach today. And lo and behold, the text we're going to study is all about that very question. How is it that if God is great and God is good, that, that uh, you know, this world has evil in it? I mean, that's a, it's a hard question. It's an ancient question. And that, that's one of the things I told the guy. I said, you know, hey, this is a question that theologians have been wrestling with for you know, millennia. This is a challenging question. In fact, we even have a name for it. Uh, philosophers and theologians call it the problem of evil. So whenever you hear that phrase, the problem of evil, that's what they're talking about. It's the fact that evil in this world is a problem. Uh, how could it be that there's evil in God's world? So uh, th- that's the issue that we're wrestling with. It's an ancient question. It's a difficult question. It's a very practical question. This is not just kind of up-in-the-sky theological puzzle-solving. I mean, this is stuff that hits our lives because all of us have experienced, to different degrees, tragedies, and uh, calamities and evils. We've had people perpetrate injustices against us. We've experienced these things. And if you're a Christian, especially, and you love God, and you believe that God loves you, you have to ask the question, why is my loving God allowing this to happen? Um, If you live in Florida this fall, and you experienced hurricane after hurricane after hurricane in a row, four hurricanes that do millions of dollars of damage and take the lives of people, maybe people you know. I mean, it's a legitimate question. It's like, God, are you in charge of the weather? Or do you just watch it on the news like we do? And, uh, you know, if you are in charge of the weather, what's up? And if you're not in charge of the weather, you know, are you really God? And so it's difficult to to put that together for us. Um, I remember one time I talked to a lady who uh, was really experiencing this problem of evil question in her life in an acute way. Uh, and I think I shared this story several years back, but it was such a kind of a powerful experience in my own ministry life that I wanted to share it, share it again. It definitely fits this, this issue. Uh, there's this lady who used to go to our church, but then her husband got a job somewhere else, so she relocated out west. And uh, I kind of heard through the grapevine that she was pregnant. And so she, she calls me one day, sort of out of the blue, and I was like, hey, nice to hear from you. You know, what's going on? She says, well, I just wanted you to know She's like, did you hear I was pregnant? I go, yeah, I think I did hear that. And she says, well, I want you to know I had the baby, and the baby just died. It was about within 24 hours of having the baby. And she says, he just died. And, and uh, a ba- apparently the baby had developed uh, clots in, in his kidney, and those broke loose, and he had a, a massive stroke. And, uh, and she says, I'm just calling because I need to talk to someone, and I need to just be, this is her words, I need to be grounded. Can you help me understand this? <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> what do you say that just doesn't sound stupid and 
cliched and prepackaged, you know. And what do you say in moments like that? And that's why I say that the problem of evil is not just a, sort of an academic Rubik's cube that we, you know, pick up every once in a while and spin around and say, oh, wasn't that was interesting? And put it down. I mean, this is like life and death stuff. This is stuff that impacts our lives because we've all experienced evil in our lives and it shaped us in profound ways. So, so as we get into this and as we look at this issue and talk about some of the philosophical things, I, I want you to know that, that this is a real practical issue. We're not just playing mental games here. This is real stuff. And our text today, as I said, that, that was what was so cool this week, is that our text has to do with it. Israel was facing the problem of evil and its experience. God was going to do something that would involve, apparently, the sanctioning of evil. Um, if you look at chapter... 45 verse 1 it says this is what the Lord says to his anointed to Cyrus whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut now to, to understand this passage let me just give you the, the real quick historical flyover of, of what's going on in the, in the historical context Isaiah is in his day looking down the historical timeline to a period about a hundred years after his ministry when uh, the Babylonians will conquer Jerusalem and destroy the Israelites. The Babylonians were going to come in. In fact, they did. They killed off most of the people. They burned the temple down. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And they took some of the people back as exiles to Babylon. But Isaiah is also looking to another event beyond that. So he sees that destruction of Jerusalem. And then beyond that, he starts to prophesy about a further event in which God will reverse all that and he will restore the people of Israel back to their land and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. So that's kind of the, the historic timeline that we're looking at. And the person that God is going to use to restore Israel back to its land and rebuild the temple is a guy named Cyrus. That's his name. So it's kind of like it's a second exodus. You remember the first exodus with Moses? Moses led the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. Well, this is the second exodus. Moses is going to lead the people out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. But instead of Moses, it's going to be a guy named Cyrus. Now, do you know, have you heard of Cyrus? Do you know who Cyrus is? The twist here is that Cyrus isn't like Moses. Cyrus is the founder of the great Persian Empire. He's the emperor who, who made the Persian Empire. In fact, take out your sermon notes for a minute. Do a quick uh, A&E biography here on Cyrus. You'll see a map of the ancient Near East. Just take it and turn it sideways. And you can see on the, the upper left is what would be today Turkey and Greece. And the lower right is uh, the northwest corner of India. Just to orient you on this map. And if you see down in the middle center, Persepolis... This is around the center of the Persian Empire. So the, the Persian Empire began in what would today be like southwestern Iran. That's where the Persian Empire was centered. And uh, Cyrus became the king of a small little kingdom in 559 B.C. And then he began a, a process of domination and conquest. Uh, he went north and conquered the Medes and sort of um, galvanized that area so that his empire became known as the Medo-Persian Empire. And then what he did is, is he began pushing westward, and he pushed west all the way up into Greece and uh, Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, you see this? He went all the way to Greece. And then he turned on his heel and marched his armies all the way back across the world to India. He went all the way into India and established his empire there. And then he went all the way over into Babylon, into the southwestern part of his empire, and he conquered Babylon. He did this all in about ten years. 
from start to finish, 10 years, boom, he owns the world. It was amazing. Have some of you seen the movie Alexander or heard about it? Uh, you, know, you could make another movie called Cyrus. Same story. Just like Alexander in, in the uh, mid-4th century B.C. conquered the known world in just a matter of years, 200 years before that, Cyrus had done it. So Alexander, you know, he was kind of, he's just copying Cyrus. Cyrus had already done this. He conquered the world. In 10 years' time, it was amazing. Um, and when he conquered Babylon, what he did is he marched into 539 B.C. in October of that year, and the people of Babylon hailed him as the king, and he didn't even have to fight for the city. By then, everyone just kind of gave up and said, all right, you're the king. And what he did is the next year in 538 B.C., he issued a decree saying that the Jews could go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple and rebuild their city. So in 538 B.C., Isaiah's prophecies come true and Israel goes back. But now, do you see the problem of evil here? Right, that's the story. But do you see where the problem of evil is? The problem is that God is taking a pagan idolater, king, raising him up, establishing him, and empowering him to destroy the countries around him and to be the conqueror. In other words, God, it, it appears, is sanctioning and making this guy successful in waging an aggressive war against people he's got no you know, guff with. That's a problem. I don't know. It seems aggressive, hostile conquering. And just remember the text because, you know, we might think, well, God just kind of permitted Cyrus and God just gave him permission, but God really wasn't behind the whole thing. Look at the text. Look at what it says. 45 verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. That's what he calls this pagan king, my anointed. To Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of. Why? Here's God's purpose to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. Then verse 2, it even becomes more specific. God says, I will go before you. So the reason Cyrus was able to do this was because God went before him. That's what it appears to be saying. God says, I will level the mountains. In other words, I'll make the, your path clear. I will break down gates of bronze. I will cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you. So it appears that, that when Cyrus is conquering, that God is the one who's really making it happen and empowering it. And that's, that's difficult to understand. So it's as if there's two explanations for the same event. Why did Cyrus conquer the known world? At the human level, it's, well, he wanted to... He was acting on his own free will. He was a conquering guy, and, and he went out and did it. But at the divine level, we say God was using all this to accomplish his purposes. So there's sort of two explanations for the same event. But there's the, therein lies the problem of evil, that God would use a pagan, idolatrous king, not Moses. I mean, I understand Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. I mean, Moses, he was like, you know, he was like this with God. I mean, of course, that makes sense. But Cyrus? What? I mean, this guy doesn't even know God. It, it says so, right in verse 4. For the sake of my servant, of Israel my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. So God knows that Cyrus doesn't know him. In fact, that's what it literally says in Hebrew, though you do not know me. Cyrus doesn't know the true God. And yet God is going to almost like cuddle him and, and raise him up and, and take tender care of him to make sure that he conquers the world. I mean, this is a problem of evil right there uh, staring at us. And, and lest we think that this was just kind of a one-time sort of 
quirky thing that God did once. Look at verse 7. I mean, if you think this is tough, that's just the stiff jab. Verse 7 is the knockout punch. Look at verse 7. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So God moves from the specific instance of Cyrus to a general principle extrapolated from it, which is that when, when disaster comes, God is the ultimate explanation behind it. That God is the ultimate reason. He says, I form light and create darkness. And I think in this context, he's talking about more than just literal light and darkness. He's talking about light and darkness as kind of symbols for good and bad things that happen. And then the next verse makes it explicit. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So here we have this general statement about what God does. So apparently God also brings about uh, the bad things. So that when bad things happen or bad people do bad things, yeah, they're free, they do them. It's not like God is making people into robots or puppets. People do the things they want to do. But somehow, in some way, God is orchestrating things for his purposes. It appears to be what that's saying. And it's confirmed in other places in the Old Testament. If you open up your... Your sermon notes. Look on page two. And we ask the question, does God ordain evil and calamity? Second Samuel twelve eleven. This is a story when David has the affair with Bathsheba, then has Bathsheba's wife killed, and then Nathan the prophet comes and challenges David. He says, This is what the Lord says Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. God says, I'm going to do it even though we know that it was Absalom, his son, who actually brings about the calamity. If you look on the next page, uh, I'm not going to read all these quotes, but look halfway down, Lamentations 3.38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Or Amos 3.6. When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Caused it. This is very, this is very difficult. And maybe you can just kind of go, hmm, okay, that's fine. I mean, I, I really struggle with that. This is hard to swallow, to think that, that in some ultimate sense, God is, is behind everything, that, that he's ordaining all things, somehow even the, the sinful acts of human beings. And you go, well, I mean, not our sinful acts. I mean, we do those freely, right? And I would say, yes, but God is also somehow in control, and I don't understand it. But, but that's, that's what we see. The ultimate case in point is the crucifixion. The crucifixion, the ultimate case in point. Who was responsible for the crucifixion? The ultimate wrong and injustice that was ever done on planet Earth. I mean, you think you've seen some bad things. The worst thing that ever happened on planet Earth, the grossest miscarriage of justice, was the crucifixion of Christ. The most horrible thing that the Son of God who came to save us would be crucified? I mean, nothing has ever been worse than that. That's the worst thing. So who caused it? Was it the sinful choices of the individuals who freely decided to crucify Christ or was it in God's plan? And the answer we get is, yes. Exactly. That's exactly who caused it. Look at your sermon notes again. Look on page 4. Look on the back. This amazing quote. Look at the second uh, scripture down. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28. This is a prayer that Peter is praying. And uh, this is what Peter prays. 
He says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you've anointed. Now, okay, stop there. So, according to Peter, Herod and Pontius Pilate did this. They weren't puppets, they weren't robots, they weren't tools. I mean, they, they did this. They, they wanted to do it, they did it, they're responsible. Someday they're going to have to answer to God for what they did. Alright? So, he's not saying that people are, are puppets or something. They really did this. But then look at the next sentence. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. <laughs> How do you put that together? How does that fit? It seems to me that, that, wow, God is kind of behind all this, behind the worst evil event in history, that people did it, but also God is sovereign. And we want to know how this fits. I mean, how, how does it all sit with you? I, I struggle with that. Uh, it, it's difficult. I want to say to God, how can that be? You know, you, you want to just pick up your your questions and just start throwing them at God. Like, what are you saying? How is that possible? How could you raise up Cyrus? That doesn't make any sense. And how is it that I'm not a puppet and a robot? And where's my free will? And, and uh, How can this be, God? And we start hurling our questions at God about the problem of evil. And it's not an intellectual abstraction. This is a thing that we deal with as we think about the evils that have happened in our life. How could this have happened to me? or to my family, or to my dad, or to my sister. How could it be, God? How could it be? Are you, you're really ultimately somehow sovereign over all this? So, Lord, explain it to me. I want an explanation right now. That's what we say. And what's so fascinating about this verse, this passage, is that God actually gives us an answer. But I don't know if we're going to like it. He gives us an answer. What is his answer? It's in verse 9. Here's what God says back to us as we machine gun him with our questions. God says in verse 9, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. To him who is but a potsherd. That's like a, like a little piece of broken pottery. Him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds of the ground. Does the clay say to the potter... What are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? In other words, he can't do that. Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled the starry host. It's kind of like a little synopsis of God's answer to Job right there. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set the exiles free. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. So, it sounds like God's answer to our questions is kind of like this. Hey, I'm God. It's kind of like his answer. Like, and that's not really what I was looking for. I was looking for some kind of philosophical treatise, a book, a paper maybe, a flow chart explaining the inner relationship between my freedom and God's sovereignty. And you know, I'm looking for some kind of grid or some kind of syllogism with, you know, this, then this, therefore that. But, but that's not what I get. God just kind of says, hey, I'm the potter, you're clay, who you think you're talking to? You're just clay, and I'm the potter. Can you really ask me about how I do things and why I do things? 
<laughs> that's the answer God gives us. It's a challenging answer. It, it kind of reminds me of a story that a, a professor of mine told in seminary to help us kind of understand this. It's a great story. He, he uh, told a story about his son when his son was a little baby in the crib. And uh, they had the crib against the window and they put the baby down one night and the baby discovered that there were blinds on the window. And so a few minutes after putting the baby down, they heard this rattling and they went in and the baby was playing with the blinds. And they said, no, 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 no. And they put the baby down and, and they you know, went out of the room. A few minutes later, rattle, 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 rattle. I go back in, no, 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 no. You know, and this happened another time. So finally they, they moved the crib away from the window a little bit so the baby can't reach the blinds. And, and then after a while, you know, they put the baby to sleep again and they, they sneak back in later after they think the baby's asleep, you know, just to straighten up the blinds. And they're straightening up the blinds, but the baby wasn't asleep. The baby looks at him and stands up in his crib and says, no, 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 no. <laughs> and that's what we do to God. No, 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 no. You can't do that. No, no, God. And God's like, what? He's the parent. We're the child. He's the potter. We're the clay. We operate under completely different rules and realities. And for us to stand there and to lecture God, I mean, I understand that, that we question and we wonder, but to come and hurl things at God and to quarrel with Him as if we had a right, I mean, that's the problem with, with this kind of assaulting God with our questions and demanding an answer, uh, is, that, is that it makes us kind of equal with God. At least in our minds. I mean, not, we're not equal with God, but it makes us think we are. As if, like, I could take God to court. And I could sue God. And we'd have to stand before a judge, and I'd be behind this one, and God would be behind that one, and Judge Judy's up there. And, you know, I present my case, and then God presents his case, and then Judge Judy rules. You know, and it's like, no, no, you know, that, it's an interesting picture, except the problem is, it's Judge God. You know, you, you don't take him to court. He's the judge, and he's the ruler, and the bailiff, and the sheriff, and everything else. And, and we try to come with these questions, and, and his answer is kind of like, I'm God. Did you forget that? And, and that's hard. And we don't like that. And the reason we don't like it, the, the reason I don't like it, is because it puts me here and it puts God up here. And that is offensive to my sinful nature. That is offensive to my self-idolatry. That is offensive to my rationalism. Not rationality. I'm not asking you to be irrational and to just throw away your brains. But what I'm saying is that our brains can only go so far. And rationalism is the idolatry of reason. So be rational, but don't be a rationalist. A rationalist is a person who thinks that the human mind is the center of all knowing. That, that if I can't get it, then it must not be true. And I believe that God purposefully does things to offend and insult our reason so that our reason will be humbled before Him. That even our great minds will be humbled before God. God wants to bring us to that place where, you know, it's like where we fall on our knees before Him and say, okay, okay, you're God. And I am just the clay. And do with me what you want. And I don't understand your ways, but I humble, I'm humble before you. And I think God will offend our reason. He will assault our checkbooks. He will assault our health. He will do whatever He wants to do. As it says in Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And He will do these things to bring me to a place of getting back where I'm supposed to be, which is on my knees before Him. I want information. God wants worship.
I want facts. God wants faith. And guess who wins? <laughs> we will be on our knees before God, either willingly in this life or at the second coming of Christ, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So which way you want to do it? The easy way or the hard way? You know, take your pick. But we will kneel. God will be known. He will fulfill what He said here in, in this passage. In, in verse, um, verse 5, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the setting, place of its setting, in other words, so everywhere, men will know that there is none beside me. God will be acknowledged as God, one way or the other. And so let us humble ourselves before Him and acknowledge that He is sovereign, even if my puny brain can't make sense of how it all fits together. Let me even humble my mind before underneath the Word of God and say, fine, you are God. And it's a difficult thing to do. I, I remember when I, I wrestled with this in seminary, I think the reason I went to seminary sometimes is so that I could just sort this issue out. I, I, for about two years in seminary, I just this was the issue. It was the, piece, the proverbial piece of sand inside the, the clam for me theologically that just kept going around and around and around and grinding around in there. I just could not reconcile myself to this. It, it was so hard and and I met other people who could, and they just seemed to be like fine about it. And I'm like, how could you be fine with this? This is so difficult. And, and I remember talking on uh, the phone one time to a, a pastor friend of mine who was a pastor when I was a teenager. And he's like, how are you doing? And, and he brought this whole theological issue up. He says, how are you doing with this? He must have sort of just knew that this is what seminarians wrestled with. I said, oh, I'm having such time. I don't know what to think, and I'm, I'm really stuck. And, and he said to me, he said, yeah, I used to be stuck too. He said, but it finally came down to this question for me. He said, I had to ask the question of myself, of God, is God God or not? And if he is, then, you know, what's my problem? I just need to humble myself before him. And that was really, really hard, and it still didn't get me there. Um, but what finally got me there, to, to kind of accepting the absolute sovereignty of God, was... Uh, near the end of my time at seminary, this, this professor, actually the same professor who told us the no, no, no story, he, a whole bunch of us in the class were like wrestling with this. We we're just like, you know, in class, like, ah, you know, and I think he just had pity on us. So he said, okay, everyone over to my house, Bible study. Bible study at the professor's house. Everyone bring your Bibles and bring up whatever verse you want. And we'll just go through the Bible and study the verses and argue. He goes, we'll stay here tonight. We're just going to argue through the doctrine of God. Like, okay, so we brought our Bibles and, you know, Different people on different viewpoints. It was great, you know, giving their arguments. and their, and, But as I listened and we read passage after passage, I just could not get around the fact that God is sovereign over all things. And uh, especially John chapter 6 and Romans 9. That, that was the two final nails in the coffin for me. John 6, poof, Romans 9, poof, and I finally was like, okay! And, and that was kind of this breaking point for me when I, I just threw myself before God and said, you are sovereign. And I just accept it, even though I can't grab it all in my mind and tie it together with a bow. And I want to tell you, it was such a relief. When you finally come to humble yourself before the sovereignty of God, it is so liberating. It is so freeing. It's just like the most awesome experience. It's sweet. It's sweet. God's sovereignty is a beautiful, sweet thing. This was Jonathan Edwards' experience. I, I put his little quote here in your sermon notes. It's worth reading. Um, Jonathan Edwards, you know, the 18th century theologian and pastor. 
Here's what he wrote. He said, From my childhood up, my mind has been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Now, just stop there. Uh, Edwards is probably the greatest mind America has ever produced. One of the greatest minds. You know, he's got to be up there with the greatest of all. He's a brilliant thinker. And I don't know if we've really produced one since then like him. Uh, so if he says he had objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty, then there's probably some good objections, <laughs> as this guy would have thought of them. He says, it used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. It's horrible. He says, well, not just a hard doctrine, a horrible doctrine. He says, but I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to the sovereignty of God. And there's been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to this doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this. So that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the absolute sense. I have often since had not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine, this is the sentence I love, the doctrine has very often appeared exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, but my first conviction was not so. You say, I still don't get it. I mean, how can it be sweet? How can this idea of God being in charge of everything, even evil, be sweet? Well, it's sweet in at least two ways. One way that it's sweet is I think it engenders real worship. It engenders real worship. Because it puts before me a God who is greater than anything I can even make sense of. And he's not some God who's at my level, who I can explain to you down to a T and tell you how it all works. There's something about having your reason overthrown that you say, okay, you're God. You, to make this all work, God, you must be bigger than I've even begun to conceive. And I think it just engenders worship for his greatness and his divinity. But the second reason that this doctrine is so sweet is because I think it is the ultimate comfort for Christians in times of crisis. This is the comfort. To know that God is in control of my circumstances. And then I couple that doctrine with another doctrine. Jesus loves me, this I know. How do you know Jesus loves you? Look what's happening to you. He died on the cross for me. I know he loves me. There's no question. So when I put his sacrificial love on the cross together with divine sovereignty and tie those doctrines together because they have to be tied together, then I, I can face anything because I know that no matter what is happening to me, my God is sovereign and he loves me and even though I'm getting covered in a pile of doo-doo by life, I know that God has a plan for me and that this is all for my ultimate good. And so there's this sense in which I'm called to see by faith through the circumstances to who God is. And I know that He's in charge and He loves me. And so I know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel even if I can't see it. And I can't even find the walls of the tunnel. I'm just lost. I know, I know He has a plan. And that, that's what I ended up saying to that, that lady I was talking to on the phone who, who had lost her uh, baby um, She's like, you know, what do I do? She says, I, I need some grounding. That was her words. And you know, I'm like, what am I going to say to this woman? And it, it was one of those rare times where I actually said the right thing. <laughs> I, I don't know. Some people are just great on their feet, and they just come up with the right thing, like Dr. Phil or something. I, I'm not Dr. Phil. I, I'm the guy who, like, later on that evening, I think of what I should have said. That, I always do that. Uh, and, and I always, and I always am like, oh, why did I say that? I should have said that, and I think I'm stupid and all that. So, but this was one of those weird times where the Holy Spirit, like, 
gave me the, the gift of being Dr. Phil. And, and, I just, and I just said what I needed to say. And I said, um, I said, well, listen, the most important thing you need to know about this is that this wasn't an accident. I said, this was God's plan for that person. And this was God's plan for your life. And it was like silence on the other end of the phone. So, so I kept going. I said, I said, I have no idea why. And I can't begin to tell you how this makes sense. But that's because I'm not God. And this is his plan. And I said, you'll understand it down the road. But I said, at this point, God is calling you to trust him without the answers. Can you trust God without the answers? That's the issue. And when we can, we are in a place of personal indestructibility. When you can stand against the the worst that life can throw at you and trust God without the answers, you are indestructible. Because you're shielded by faith and and you can overcome the world. And so hold these two doctrines in your heart the sovereignty of God and His love for you. And please, I hope you realize that doctrine is a life and death issue. That theology is the most important thing you have. Is your theology of who God is. And you say, ah, that's not true. Theology doesn't matter about real life. No, 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 no. When you go through trials, your doctrine and your theology come right to the surface and they'll either support you or they'll sink you. And so think rightly about who God is, that He is sovereign, and ah, He loves me, because Christ died for me, and I have no doubt that He loves me. And tie those together, and nothing can stop you, nothing can hurt you. Let's pray. You know what, I'm just going to kneel before God, and if anyone wants to or is physically able to, you can feel free to do the same. God, you are the Lord, and there is none beside you. You alone are God. From one end of the universe to the other, there is nothing who rivals you or even comes close. And Lord, you are sovereign and king over everything. Lord, we acknowledge that everything that ultimately happens has its root in you. Even, Lord, when we freely and responsibly make bad decisions, somehow, Lord, it's part of your plan. And God, we are totally unable to understand this. But Lord, we want to trust you without the answers. And we want to put our faith in you. We know that you call us to this place of dependency. So Lord, we bow our knees before you now and just worship you, the inscrutable God, the great and sovereign God, the great and awesome God. And I thank you, God, that you're not just some all-powerful tyrant, but that you're the all-powerful God of love who sent Jesus Christ to die for us. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are my assurance that God's almighty sovereign power is being leveraged for my ultimate eternal good. Lord, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you, Jesus, that they would be humble before you, that they would come to that place of kneeling before you in their hearts and calling on Christ to be saved. And that they might find that sweet liberation that comes when we surrender everything to you. Lord, give us greater visions of who you are. Make our doctrine and our theology right on. 
Not so that our heads will be filled with the right facts, but so that our lives will be grounded on the right God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you come and lead us.